Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. We now get to hear God's Word uh, from Acts 14. This is God's Word, and it is eternally true. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lycaonia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. At Lystra, a man, who was sit- a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lycaonian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you, that you should, have, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day, he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every, in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. 
From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Daniel. My name is Stephen Baker. I'm one of the pastors here. If, I haven't, if you're new and I haven't met you, please um, make sure that I do later. So we're in the middle of our series through the book of Acts. And what we have today is kind of the middle and end of this first missionary journey that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas go on together. And can you put the map up? There it is. So if you remember, they've started here in Syrian Antioch, okay? And they have traveled through Cyprus. They've come up, made landfall again, and gone up to Antioch. This is a different Antioch. This is Pisidian Antioch in Pisidia, right? And they go from Antioch. Today, we're going to see them, first of all, in Iconium, then down to Lystra, then down to Derbe, and then they go back through those same cities and then go home back to Antioch. And at the end, we just, we just saw it at the very end of this chapter, 14, they get back to their home church, their sending church in Antioch, right? And what do they do? They have a missions conference. They call together the church and they tell them what God had done. Notice how it says that at the end of verse 14 what God had done through them. God had opened a door of faith for the Gentiles. So this is where uh, one of those times when a missionary conference, the missionaries are actually telling you what actually happened. Uh, Let's see. So they come back. So we're going to pick up here in Iconium and then come all the way back to Antioch. So if you remember what happened last week, how many of you were here last week? Okay, so you saw chapter 13. And if you look at chapter 14, verse 1, it says this, in Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together. Now, if you're here for chapter 13, this might seem kind of strange, okay? Because remember what happened in chapter 13. They're in this other Antioch, right? Pisidian Antioch. And they come into the synagogue and they preach Paul preaches. We have the record of his sermon there. And what happens? All kinds of people believe. All kinds of people believe. Lots of them. And they are hungry for the word of God. So what does it say? After they're getting up and ready to leave the synagogue, they are begging them to come back and preach again to them the next week, the next Sabbath. Now, I know there's some old preachers around here, young and old. Have you ever had anyone begging you to come back next week? No. (laughs) They're begging, begging, please come and tell us more. And they leave the synagogue, and they're like, the crowds are like walking along with them. They can't get away from them, and they keep telling them, continue in the grace of God. We'll see you next week, you know? And so next week, who shows up? Almost the whole city shows up. 
not a small city. Almost the whole city shows up. And the Jews, instead of saying, praise God, look at all these people coming to hear the word of the Lord. No, they are jealous. Right? They're jealous. When they see the crowds, they're filled with jealousy. They begin contradicting the things spoken of by Paul and they're blaspheming. So Paul is saying, uh, if you, they're saying Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the savior of the world. And the Jews are saying, no, he's not. They're saying, if you trust in Jesus alone and stop trying to make yourself right with God by what you do, you'll be saved. And the Jews are saying, no, you won't. They're saying, you don't, you don't become right with God by obeying the law. And the Jews say, yes, you do. Right? So at every point, no matter what they say, the Jews are contradicting them and they're blaspheming. They are saying terrible things about the Lord Jesus. And so Paul and Barnabas say this, you remember? They say, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, you Jews. But since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Because God has said you will be a light to the Gentiles. Now, Pastor Killingsworth preached on that and opened that up for us, but I just want us to remember, put yourself back there. How awful it is what the Apostle Paul says, the truth of what he says. He's not being mean, he's telling the truth. These people, he says, you Jews, repudiate the word of God. You know what it means to repudiate? Like, trample on it, right? To heck with that. They repudiate the word of God and they judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. Now that's weird. So wrap your mind around this for a second. Is anyone worthy of eternal life? No. So why does he put it that way? Do you remember what Pastor Killingsworth said? Well, let me, let's open that up for a second. There are a couple of ways to judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. The first way to judge yourself unworthy of eternal life is to say, I'm not a sinner. Because Jesus came for sinners, right? He came for the blind, he came for the sick, he came for the dead. And so if you say, well, I'm not dead, I'm fine. I see just fine. You're unworthy of eternal life. You can't possibly be saved. The other way to judge yourself unworthy of eternal life is what? To see, oh yeah, I do believe I'm a sinner, but I think I can fix myself. Yes, I, I, I'm burdened in my conscience by sin, and I don't like it, but there must be something I must do. There must be something I must do first that I can like fill my hands with, you know? Fill my hands with good things that I have done. I'll, I'll bring them to the Lord and he'll say, oh, good job, okay. You get eternal life. All right, you do that 
and you have judged yourself unworthy of eternal life. This is what the Jews are doing. No, we have a law. God gave it to us, and if we obey it, he'll reward us with eternal life. That's how it works, right? No. No. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 4, that the only way to be saved, the only way to be right with God, is to, is it's, he says, it's not to the one who works, but to the one who believes in him, who justifies the who? The ungodly. God doesn't justify the godly. There is no such thing as godly in us, right? And so you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. That's a heartbreaking thing for the Apostle Paul to say. It is true of some of you here today. You're doing what they're doing. You're repudiating the word of God, even as it's being read to you and preached to you. You're saying, that's not right. That's not true. I don't believe that. That's silly. Do I really have to be here? Yeah, I guess I'm 12, so I have to be here. You're repudiating it and thereby judging yourself unworthy of eternal life. It's heartbreaking. And so they turn to the Gentiles. And we would think, after all the trouble that the, Gentile, that the Jews have posed to Paul, that he would just be done with the Jews. I mean, he said, you guys have done this, we're turning to the Gentiles. And you would think, the rest of the book is about Gentiles only, but it's not. Because what's the first thing they do? They go to the synagogue in Iconium. The Jews in Antioch have run them out. And so, but they go to the synagogue. This is not because the Apostle Paul knows what they're going to ask him when he gets back to Antioch. Now, Paul, did you go to the Jews first wherever you went? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I went to the Jews. You know, so he goes to the Jews, checks the box. I know they're not going to listen to me. I know they're against me. They're, it's just going to be a, a pain, but I'll do it anyway. I'll check the box. And I'll go and I'll speak in a half-hearted, mumbly way so that, you know, because I know they're not going to listen to me anyway. You know how they are. Right? Is that what he does? No. The Apostle Paul does not go because he's checking a box. He's not jumping through hoops. He loves them. He really does love them. I mean, he really loves the Jews. Do you remember what he says in, in Romans 9? He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's talking about the Jews. He says, if, 
I love them so much. I'm not lying, seriously, he says. If I could trade places with them and be accursed, if I could go to hell for them, I would. If that would bring them to Christ. Do you love anyone that much? That's Paul. I want them to be saved. And so he goes to the synagogue, right? And what does he do? Verse 1, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and did what? Spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. Was Paul checking a box? I know they're not going to listen to me. I'll mumble some words. I know what's going to happen. Get on to the Greeks. No. He speaks with pathos, is what the old people would have said, right? With soul, with suffering, with life. And he's, he's begging them to believe pouring out his heart to them. He doesn't want them to die. He's filled with energy and life, and he's speaking in such a way that a large number believe. Okay? Now, God is the one who causes people to believe. We know that. And yet, it says, they spoke in such a manner that a large number believed. So the way we speak is not just indifferent. All of you who are studying to be preachers or who are pastors now or who are evangelists at IU or whatever, you need to remember this. The, the power is certainly the truth, but God uses people to tell the truth. And they spoke in such a way that a large, large number believed. It has to do with their manner, not the content. The content was true, but the manner is also important but they're doing this because they love them. What happens next? Well, verse two happens next. But the Jews who disbelieved, so there were Jews who did believe, but these are the Jews who disbelieved, right? They disobeyed the gospel. The Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds, they stirred up the souls of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. So you know the saying, uh, misery loves company, right? Misery loves company. If, if you're miserable, you want everyone else to be miserable. Bitterness loves company too. Unbelief loves company. Unbelief is never content just to be quiet. Unbelief wants to make every else, everyone else unbelieving too. Bitterness, unbelief, disobedience, impurity, loves company. It somehow... Um, justifies yourself, doesn't it? 
I'm not the only one. Slander loves company. Gossip loves company. Paul says, bad company corrupts good morals. Remember that little proverb from the Apostle Paul? This is why we need to be very careful who we fill our ears with. You young people, be very careful who you fill your ears with. Who you let in to your head. Who you let into your soul. That's what it says. The Jews who disbelieved stirred up literally the souls of the Gentiles. Their spirit and their body, they filled it up with bitterness. Now, what would you do? You come to a town, you've got a history of trouble, right? You've just left Antioch, trouble. They, wrote, they drove you out, you come to a town, you preach, amazing fruit, and yet the Jews come, trouble. What do you do next? We know what's happening next, we better go. We're just going to go. There are other towns here, we're going to go. What they had just done in Antioch is shake literally the dust off the sandals of their feet. You know what you do when you're, you've got the dry, dry mud on your, your, your boots and you, you go outside and smack them together to get the mud off? That's what they did. Just, psh, psh, we're done with you. Is that what they do here? No. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 starts with a strange word in this context. The word is therefore. All right? So the Jews embittered the souls of the Gentiles against them. Therefore what? Because the Jews embittered the souls of the Gentiles against them, what did they do? Therefore, they spent a long time there. Now that's weird. That's not how we think. So instead of saying, okay, trouble, I know where this is going. We're going to go somewhere else. They doubled down and they stayed a long time. This whole missionary journey that we're studying right now, this first missionary journey, is like three years long. And so when it says they spent a long time there, don't think a week. We don't know how long, but it's a long time. Okay? They, they, they settle in. And they dig in and they double down and they start working. The people don't like us. That means we should stay. <laughs> That's what they're doing. And what are they doing? They, therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly. Okay, so think about it. What would we do? Okay, all right, we've taken the polls. We know what they think. They don't like us. They don't like this, this, this. They think we're crazy. They think we're a cult, whatever. They think we're misogynist. They think we're, I don't know, crazy, knuckle-dragging, whatever. Who knows? So let's just, I know, I know. Let's try to talk to them in such a way that proves that we're actually nice. You know, or just takes the rough edges off, you know? Let's just take the, we're going to, now we're not going to compromise the gospel, but we're going to get out the sandpaper and just kind of sand off the rough edges because we don't want anyone to think that, we don't want anyone not to like us. 
That's not what they do. They speak boldly with reliance on the Lord. Right? They speak boldly. They tell the truth. They're not hiding it. They're not trimming it. They're not shaving it. They're not sanding it. They're not nasty. They're just telling the truth. They're not apologizing as they tell the truth. They're bold. And the Lord is blessing them. They're doing it in humble reliance on the Lord. The Lord is testifying as they're speaking. This is how it has is works, you know, it works with the, with these apostles at this time. They're speaking and the Lord is is testifying to the truth of their words by allowing miracles to happen, right? Works of power, amazing things that can only be done by the power of God. So what does this bring? What's the result of this kind of ministry? Peace? Is it peace? We must be doing something wrong if we have opposition, right? Look at what it says, verse 4. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. And should this surprise anybody? No. This is exactly what our Lord Jesus said would happen. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What do swords do? Well, they cut things. They divide, right? That's what he said. Some of you know exactly what that's like. When Jesus said this, he said, I'm going to send not peace, but a sword, and it'll divide between husband and wife sometimes, right? We've seen that. We've seen that. Um, parents and children. Some believe, some don't. Have we seen that? Yeah. He even goes on to say like mother-in-laws and things like that. So he even gets into the in-laws, you know? It gets complicated, right? And so if, if a sword comes and divides families, of course it divides towns, cities, nations, the world. When it says that some were divided, the city, you know that that means some of the families were divided. This is what happens. This is what happens when the truth comes in. Okay? Don't be surprised by that. Don't be scandalized by it. Don't be offended by it. And so what happens next? Verse 5. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them. You know what it means to stone someone? It means to throw big rocks at them until they're dead. All right? To mistreat and stone them. When they heard about it, they became aware of it. They fled to the cities of Lycaonia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region, and there they continued to preach the gospel. 
This is the principle of um, uh, discretion is the better part of valor. Right? Live to preach another day. They could have stood their ground and said, they're coming to stone us, bring it on. You know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Bring it on. But they didn't. Sometimes it's the right thing to do is to run. And they ran. But not as cowards, because right, they went to the next city. They didn't say, okay, guys, remember what just happened? Let's lay low for a while. They went to the next city and did it all over again. They preached the word. Faith, confidence in what God would do through them. So that brings us to Lystra. Verse 8, at Lystra, a man was sitting. Now note carefully, it's kind of hard to understand what his condition is. Make sure, see if you can figure it out, okay? At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. In case you didn't get it the first time, he gives you the second time. And in case you didn't get the second time, he gives you the third time. This man is lame, lame. He's not one of those people who uses a, those electric wheelchairs and then get up and walks all over the place. You know, <laughs> he's really lame. He actually needs it. All right? He's lame. He'd never walked. And verse 9, this man was listening to Paul as he spoke. Well, what else would he do? He can't get up and leave. He's a captive audience. So Paul is, list, Paul is preaching out in public. Not in the house. He's preaching out in public where anyone can listen. And this man was listening to Paul as he spoke. And Paul notices him. He fixes his gaze on him. Right? He notices him. And what does he see? What does it say? What does he see in the man? He sees faith. What does faith look like? It could be, this is an apostle, right? Maybe he has just a special revelation from God, okay, that guy, you should focus on him because he's going to believe. That could be. Ah. Anyone who's preached, okay? <laughs> when we preach to you and we look out across the people, you know, we're not preaching to the lights in the back there. We're trying to preach to you. And so we're looking at you and we're catching the vibes you know what I mean? Right? You know what it's like to preach that way? You're catching the vibes. And sometimes we look at a face and we say, oh, that person is as hard as nails. You know what I mean? Hard as nails. And it's like, okay, I'm just, oh, I just can't even look at that. It's just so de depressing, you know? Seriously. Sometimes people are hard as nails. It's just all over your face. 
There are people in this room right now who are hard as nails. There are other people, when you see them, it's like, oh, wait. Oh, there's one. And it's obvious, you know? They're, they're listening. And they're soft. And they're like, please be true. <laughs> you know? Please be true. They're like just there. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul sees in this man. What does he see? He fixed his gaze on him and saw that he had faith to be, this says, he had faith to be made well. But the thing is, what it actually says, okay, is that he had faith to be saved. Don't get the idea that the only thing this guy wants is his feet to work, okay? He wants to live. He wants to be saved. And in almost all of the examples of, of uh, healings and, and this kind of miraculous healing in the New Testament, whether it's Jesus or the apostles, almost always, it's not just the physical thing, it's the soul, right? It's the whole man, the whole woman. And when, he, when Jesus heals them, they're saved, right? They have faith for the salvation of their whole man, not just their body. And so this lameness is like a picture. And this is how it is all through the New Testament, all through Scripture. We have these pictures of, it's a physical condition, but it pictures something bigger. Lameness, helplessness, right? Blindness, physical blindness, but yeah, that's just a picture of what's really going on, spiritual blindness. I can't see a thing. Deafness, I hear the word of God, it makes no sense to me. I don't know what these people are all excited about. I don't hear anything, you know? Even death Death. These are all pictures. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We are blind. We are hard-hearted. We are deaf. We're lame. We're helpless. And so with this man, he's lame. He wants to be saved. What's the one thing he can't do? He's lame. What's the one thing he can't do? Walk. And so what does Paul command him to do? Get up and walk. Now that's just, that's got to be something like hate speech. You know? What do you mean, get up? You're mocking me. This is what Jesus does this. The man with the withered hand, right? His hand doesn't work. The one thing I can't do is stretch it out. It's withered. You know? What does Jesus tell him to do? 
Stretch out your hand. What about Lazarus? Lazarus is dead, dead. Most, he's not mostly dead, he's dead, dead. He's all the way dead. He's so, now this is, okay, he's so dead that his sister says, Lord, don't open the tomb. Please don't open the tomb. By the, little King James lingo here. By this time, he stinketh. That's what he said, that's what she says. He's dead. And so, no, open the tomb. He opens the, they open the tomb, and what does he say to the dead man? Lazarus? Come forth. Is this crazy? What he commands us to do now here, what he commands you to do, is believe. You can't. Is this some kind of weird joke? No. Right. God gives what he commands. He gives what he commands. He commands this man, stand up and walk, right? Stand upright on your feet. And the man stands up. He commands Lazarus, the dead man, to come out of the tomb. And Lazarus, the dead man, says, what else can I do? The Lord of life told me to get up. And if you find yourself believing, right, this is what's happening. He's giving you faith. Don't get all wrapped around the axle about that. Just believe. The, this man, lame from birth, he'd never walked, he couldn't, you know, he doesn't think, well, now hold on a minute. That just doesn't make sense. I need to know that I can stand before I actually stand. You know? I need to know that I'm healed before I can stand up. And I don't know that I'm healed because I can't. St no, just stand up. Just do it. Just believe. Just come. And what did the man do? He leaped up and began to walk. This is a complete, comprehensive healing. He doesn't do what I do when I get up from kneeling. <laughs> oh, man. Oh. He leaps up. His feet had never worked. Well, they work now. Well, what happens then? Verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, it really wasn't Paul who did it, but you know, they raised their voice saying the, in the Lycaonian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. You see, this is, all, this is the only sense they can make of this. This isn't, I mean, undisputed, this man can't walk, now he's walking. The only explanation is the gods have come down. This is their worldview, right? They're pagans. Which gods came down? Well, Zeus and Hermes. Well, who's Zeus? Zeus is the father of the gods. 
And Hermes is, or Mercury, right, is the messenger of the gods. And so the commentators say this. They say, well, how did they, why Zeus, why would, they say Barnabas is Zeus. Why is Barnabas Zeus? Barnabas, they say, is old and portly. He's the old man who just, you know, gray beard. But Paul is Hermes because he's talking and he's like, all right, the Mercury or Hermes was, you ever been to the flower shop? You ever ordered flowers to send to somebody? You do this all the time? No. And there's like this sign on the, wall, on the window you know, that's telling you that you can order flowers and they'll get there right on time. And what is the picture? Do you remember? It's Mercury or Hermes. It's the man with, with wings on his feet, right? Fast. He's fast. And so this tells us maybe something about the Apostle Paul. He's like, he's a little wiry Jewish guy who's just like, right? Kind of like Daniel. Daniel is like, <laughs> he's just like that, actually. <laughs> it's amazing. But no. So then verse 13, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. They really mean it. These are the gods. There's only one thing we can do. We need to offer sacrifice. If we don't, Something bad will happen to us. How would you respond to that? They've had nothing but bad responses wherever they've gone, right? Opposition, bitterness, the Gentiles being stirred up by the Jews. They tried to, they ran us out. They almost stoned us in the last town. Opposition, opposition, opposition. And now they're saying, the messenger of the gods has come. What do you think you would do? Well, yeah, you know, we'll get to that at some point. <laughs> you know, well, at some point, we'll, we'll get to the fact that those aren't really gods and I'm not really a god. You know, we'll break them in slowly. But for now, this is like the perfect opportunity to get a crowd and to get, make them shut up and listen to me. Let's do that. Uh, no. Verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes. Have you ever been so disturbed that you tore your shirt? I don't think so. But this is what they do. This is what they did. This is common. As in, back there, back then and back there, when someone heard something that was just the most disturbing thing you could possibly imagine, they would tear their robes, right? 
Very expressive, very public, very outward, very visible, very obvious. Not just a slight little no thanks. They tear their robes and they rush out into the crowd crying out and saying what? Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you. They don't stop there. And we preach to you. We preach the gospel to you. That you should turn from these vain things, these gods, these false gods. You should turn away from these empty, useless things to the living God. The God who has life in himself. The God who no one made. The God who gives life. The living God. You should turn to him. This is the gospel. Turn to God from idols and it'll go well with you. Who is this living God? He's the creator God, the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that's in them. He is the patient God because in generations past, he permitted you pagans to to go along with this awful stuff and he didn't wipe you out. But now, And while he did that, he didn't leave himself without witness. Right? God, just think about this. Think about the centuries, the millennia, the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years. Think about the vast hordes of people Think about the Huns. Think about the Persians. Think about the Greeks. Think about the Chinese. Think about the Native Americans. Think about the Africans. Think about the Inca. Think about the Maya. Think about the Egyptians. Just think about everybody. What did God do? He let them go their own way. What did they deserve? They deserve judgment. And God was not silent to them. He was constantly speaking to them. He did not leave himself without witness. They are not without excuse. They are without excuse. This is what Romans 1 tells us. How did he witness to them? Well, by being good to them. He gave them rain from heaven. Every time it rains, everybody knows I have nothing to do with this. And, and there, are no, there are no atheist farmers in a drought. We need rain. We're going to die. God give us rain, right? Everybody knows this. And not only does he give us rain, he gives us 
plants. He gives us fruitful seasons. This is all the goodness of God and his patient mercy, witnessing constantly of himself. He has given you everything you need to know that you have to turn to him. Even if you've never heard scripture ever in your life before. And it's not just outside, it's inside. You see what he says? He did good, gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. The fact that pagans, idol worshipers, atheists can actually enjoy the gifts of God is an undeniable proof of the goodness of God. So turn from these vain things to the living God. Turn to him. That's what they say. What's the result of that? Well, even saying these things with difficulty, they restrain the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Verse 19. Here the music changes, right? <laughs> to that music that you hear when something bad is about to happen, right? But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. They're chasing them down. And having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul. Now, which crowds? The crowds that moments before had been saying, the gods have come down among men. Let's, let's worship them. And the Jews come easily, easily turn the Gentiles away. Why does it bother the Jews so much? Do the Jews like Gentiles? No. Do the Jews like Zeus? No. Do the Jews like Hermes? No. Do the Jews try to get the Gentiles to worship Yahweh, the true and living God? No. All they care about is you can't worship Jesus. Strange bedfellows here. And in an instant, on a dime, praise and worship kill them. This is how fickle crowds are. We don't, we don't lick our finger and figure out which way the crowd is going. We don't live by the smiles or the frowns of men. They stoned him. They threw big rocks at him until, by all indications, he was dead. What do you think, what do you think he looked like after that? Caleb Hess is in the second service as well. Caleb, raise your hand. Everyone know Caleb? So Caleb has a black eye today. And it's not because he was stoned. It was because he was saplinged. He tells the story he was cutting some, a tree that had fallen 
and it shifted and there was a sapling and it smacked him in the eye. And you can see it. I can see it from here. Now think of Paul. Big rocks hurled at him until he thought he was dead. He might have been dead, actually. Maybe. God raises the dead. He could have been dead. But anyway, he's, he's as good as dead. They drag him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But what happens next? I think this is probably miraculous, okay? But while the disciples stood around him, he got up, shook it off, you know, shook it off, shook off practically being dead, and walked into the city and started preaching again. All right, see what it says. While the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went with Barnabas to Derbe, and after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. So they go back through all the places where all the people had tried to kill them and went back and met with the churches, strengthened them, encouraged them. And what do they say? What is Paul's message? This great uplifting message. You can have everything. You can have your best life. Now. That's it. No. Um, let's see. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying what? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. How is that encouraging? Let me talk just for a second, I'm almost done, about expectations. Okay? If you expect that becoming a Christian and entering the kingdom of God means, oh, from now on, everything is going to be so easy. All my burdens gone, all my troubles lifted. All my bills paid. You know, it's just going to be easy. That's what God promised, right? Right? And so if that's what you expect, what happens to you when tribulation comes? I'll tell you what happens to you. Jesus already told us. Remember? He told a parable, and in one of the parts of the parable, he says this. The seed that falls on rocky soil. The seed is the word of God. The soil is the heart of someone who's receiving it. And he says this, some seed falls on rocky places. And when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy, right? This is great. But they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And so if you expect 
that being Christian means smooth sailing from here on, you will be rudely awakened to the fact that, no, actually, you're going to be, you're going to suffer something. And you're going to shrivel up, your root is nothing, and you're gone. You're gone. So what the Apostle Paul is doing is telling these people, he's strengthening them. You need to know what's coming. And he's encouraging them. Encouragement doesn't mean say nice things to people to make them feel good. Encouragement means strengthen them, give them courage, you know, encourage. Now here's the weird thing though. Um, Apostle Paul was stoned. Right? Does this mean everybody must get stoned? He said to Timothy, anyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Does that mean everyone must get stoned? No. No. There are all kinds of tribulations. That's why he says it the way he does. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. There are all kinds. And I look out across the congregation. Every time the pastors stand up here and look out across you, men and women, we know the tribulations you've gone through. We know the, the, the fact that you had to leave your family, some of you, or have great tension with your family. We know the ways you've been sinned against and the way it was covered up and the pain that's brought to you and the life that's come to you through that by coming to the Lord, right? We've known the ways that you have fought with your own sins and that is tribulation. It is tribulation. Through many tribulations. We know some of you have lost jobs. Some of you have lost promotions. Let me close with this. Okay, I want to talk to the kids for a second. So you young people, you children, and by children, I don't mean necessarily little children. I mean anybody, any of you, even if you're all grown up now, but you grew up in the church, not necessarily this church, but you grew up in church and you have good, faithful parents. All right, if that's you, listen to me. Because <laughs> you don't see tribulation. You don't see hardship. Life is pretty easy for you. Nobody hates you, right? And you don't know the hardship that your parents went through to give you a home that is filled with peace. I don't mean perfectly filled with peace. Don't get all literal on me. You know what I'm saying? But your parents have suffered hardship and tribulation. And you're like in the wake, coming behind them. Where for you, life is easy. And so you read this kind of stuff, you hear this, and you think, that doesn't ring true to me. 
you're riding along in the wake and you have no appreciation and therefore you you take it all so lightly totally take it for granted totally take it for granted everything that you've heard from the time you were born it's like noise You don't hear it. You take it for granted. Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. These tribulations will come to you, young people. Some of them you'll bring on yourself by repudiating the word of the Lord and judging yourself unworthy of eternal life. And maybe God will use that to bring you to your senses, like the prodigal son. It doesn't have to be that way. Ask your parents. (laughs) Ask your parents how they got to where they are today. Maybe they've never told you the stories. I could tell you some stories about them. (laughs) Parents, tell your kids this is not cheap. The kingdom of God is not cheap. Something to be thrown away. That leads to death. Well, let's pray. Ask God to open our eyes and to help us. Father, would you please help us? I do pray, especially for our young people, that they would, that they themselves would not turn their backs on what they've learned, that they would not repudiate it, that they would know the sufferings and the persecutions and the hardships that even their parents have gone through. And that they themselves would be ready for that and not surprised when it comes. But Lord, know that the kingdom of God is at stake. Let them come. Let them come and turn to you and live a serious and devout and godly life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.